in order to do something bigger or something that's outside your comfort zone, um, that's when courage shows up. So by very definition, that means that fear is present. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Welcome back to Wisdom for Wellbeing. Today, I am joined by Dr. Rebecca Ray. Rebecca is an author, speaker, and clinical psychologist. She uses a science-backed heart and hard truth approach to help big picture thinking women entrepreneurs and creators live a life that's fulfilling, unapologetic, and free. Rebecca has been a clinical psychologist for the best part of two decades and is also the creator of a number of digital courses, including Overcoming Self-Sabotage, From Paralysis to Progress, and Radical Courage, Transforming Fear into Freedom. She is the author of The Art of Self-Kindness, The Universe Listens to Brave, and Be Happy, 35 Powerful Methods for Personal Growth and Well-Being. Rebecca can be found online daily interacting with her community about using courage and brain potential to create an impactful business that makes a meaningful difference in the world while going gently on ourselves. And in fact, in today's conversation, one of the really important themes that Rebecca shares is how one cultivates self-kindness. We talk through self-sabotage, something that I'm sure comes up for you like it does for me, as well as sensitivity, and how this then relates to the cultivation of self-kindness, the importance of it, as well as how it links with self-sabotage. But without further ado, let me introduce you to Rebecca now. Rebecca, welcome to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much for making the time to be with me here today. Thanks for having me, Caitlin. It's a pleasure to be here. I am just so delighted because the work that you're doing, you know, is incredible. And we're going to talk through a few things today, you know, around self-sabotage and the art of self-kindness, but just to orientate listeners, would you mind introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about what has drawn you to this work of supporting people to live courageously? Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist and a an author and a speaker but first and foremost I'm just a human (laughs) just trying to walk my path and live bravely and meaningfully and how I've arrived here is I was a clinical psychologist in private practice seeing clients one-on-one for a lot of years um I think we're talking close to 15 years maybe that makes me feel old but that's how long I was in clinical practice for. And I got to the point where I was actually feeling really burnt out and I kind of broke my own heart. Really. I honestly thought when I went into private practice that I would be seeing clients until I was 75, you know, I thought it was a career that I could do forever. Um, and I got to the point much earlier than I expected, you know, in my mid thirties where I just thought I, there is, I have nothing left of myself to give this. And so I had to reinvent my career. I had to reinvent myself really. Um, I walked away from clinical practice and really sat for a time in this 
space of uncertainty and having no idea where my life was headed, but also devastated that I could no longer make a difference in other people's lives, which is what I really loved doing. I loved the courage that clients would bring when they would sit with me and talk to me about their innermost vulnerabilities and the transformations that we could create. You know, when you get to see how brave people are in their lives, because you get, they invite you into their stories. I absolutely love that. And not being able to do it anymore really upset me. And so I was left sitting with this idea of well, what do I do? How on earth can I take my skills as a psychologist and still make some kind of difference on the world without seeing people one-on-one? And that's when I connected with my kind of childhood dream of writing, but I never pursued writing because I didn't think it was a decent job. You know, <laughs> like, I'm not Liz, I'm not Liz Gilbert. So um, uh, I didn't ever think that I could make it as a writer and um So I kind of started in secret, putting my work out online, incredibly scared about social media and not comfortable with it at all. And I, you know, you do something enough, it starts to become more comfortable. And I just happened to find a lot of people out there like me who were very interested in this idea of how we sit with the challenge of being humans and suffering as part of our experience, but still make something courageous and meaningful from that. And so where I am today is um, my work entails writing and podcasts and essentially taking what I know as a psychologist and translating it into concepts that are really easily understandable for people to help them to live bravely and meaningfully in the world and not have to accept that just existing is the status quo and that's all they can um, hope for, you know? That's really beautiful. And that's quite an incredible framework. You know, you mentioned how how wonderful it was to be invited into people's lives and to be with them and to see how brave they were. And it sounds like you were really looking for an avenue where you could show up bravely and in a way where you were still serving and connecting. Yeah, that's right. I I mean, I didn't necessarily sit there and say, how brave can I be? (laughs) I just had to be brave to do it, if you know what I mean. I I think I honestly see myself as a professional scaredy cat. I think most of the time I'm petrified and certainly showing up online. I mean, I didn't have a Facebook account before 2015. I was very anti-social media and yet I had to embrace it in order to find a way that I could still use my skills and find an audience, you know, because it's not like I had, I could just rely on the doctors that had referred to me for the last decade, you know? A professional scaredy cat. That's such interesting language for someone that a lot of people would would say, well, that's really brave, like showing up and changing, you know, how you were, I guess serving is, is really brave. So that's really interesting that from your internal perspective, you're feeling like this scaredy cat, you know, I guess it shows that we don't always know what's going on beneath the surface for people. True. But also my view of courage is that you, there is no such thing as fearlessness. I mean, unless you're a psychopath or you have a particular type of brain injury, then fearlessness doesn't exist. We are designed to be fearful animals. It's how we respond to the world. And so when I say I'm a professional scaredy cat, I actually, I feel like, I feel a sense of pride around that because the courage exists alongside my fear. Mm. I don't let fear stop me. 
So I'm just really honest about the fact that whenever I do something new or something big, I absolutely feel fear while it's happening. It just, the fear doesn't stop me from doing it. Would we conceptualize brave then as being able to experience the fear and still move forward in, you know, living the life that, that you're deeming valuable? Absolutely. I, I don't think courage can exist without fear. It doesn't have to. So mm-hmm. if you're going down the street to get some milk, you don't need courage to do that. Assuming you're living in a safe environment, you know, um, you don't need courage to go and put a load of washing on in order to do something bigger or something that's outside your comfort zone. Um, that's when courage shows up. So by very definition, that means that fear is present and I never want people to think that I come at this from a place of fearlessness and I do the things that I do in the world without feeling scared. I absolutely feel scared. Um, it's just that the more things I do, the less thing that the more things I do, the more things I'm capable of doing. So uh, once upon a time, if I had have had a podcast interview, I would have stressed about that. <laughs> And um, showing up and the oh my goodness, am I going to sound like an idiot or will I say the right things? But I've done this so many times now that it's just a part of my calendar. You know, it's not a thing anymore. And that's what happens when we bring courage to the way of living is that our comfort zone widens and the richer our lives get because the more we can do. Yeah. So it's, I guess, having that courage, finding that like inner strength or bravery to do the things that are important to us. And then over time, it might be more easeful to do them. But in the beginning, when we're doing something new, it's going to take a different degree of, I guess, intentionality to, to move in that, in that direction. Yeah. And be, and, and emotional energy, mental energy, but sometimes physical energy as well. Things are just harder when we're new at them or when they're uncomfortable for us because we've not done them before or they're in a zone that we didn't think we'd find ourselves. And I think over time, as things become more comfortable, they take less cognitive effort. And so it's not exhausting anymore. You know, I don't, I'm not a believer that we should be courageous a hundred percent of the time because (laughs) you'd burn out pretty quickly. So (laughs) whenever I'm doing something, for instance, I'm about to start a second book manuscript for this year. Yesterday, I just finished my first manuscript and now I have to go into writing the second one. Despite the fact that this will be the fifth book that I've written, I'm still petrified. I sit here petrified knowing on Monday I'm going to start that manuscript. And despite the fact that I know how to write a book, you know, I don't know how to write this book. And so we just keep showing up and understand that, the more effort you put into something, if it requires a lot from you, then that effort is taken away from something else. So when I'm doing something big, like writing a book, um, I don't put anything else on my plate. So there's no more podcast interviews until November now. Um, Despite the fact that this is not difficult for me, there's nothing extra on my plate because I know the emotional and mental and psychological energy that's got to come from me in the next three months to get this manuscript written. So I think it's really important that people understand that it's not, it's not about setting yourself up for this mountain climbing every single day. (laughs) I think that's really nice to have you acknowledge like the emotional, mental and physical energy that's required because I suppose after someone does something new, you know, all of us have that experience of feeling really 
exhausted when something is new and does require like gross courage and bravery. So being kind to ourselves after and hearing you say, okay, well, it's your fifth book, but you're still mindful of the fact that that takes such energy that you're flexibly reworking your schedule that you don't have to, and I say in air quotes, like do it all. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I guess a lot of us struggle with getting in the way of doing the things that are important to us that we maybe know in our hearts could, could widen our, our lives is self-sabotage. Yes. Self-sabotage is when you end up spending your time, money, emotional, um, psychological, mental energy resources on doing things that are not the things you need or want to be doing. And I think it's really important to note that everyone self-sabotages. Everyone. If you procrastinate, you're self-sabotaging. But the self-sabotage is not really a problem if it's done in small amounts or if it's not getting in the way of the overall goal. So I, <laughs> my house is never cleaner than when I have to write a book. I am incredibly effective at procrastinating and procrastinating and teaching my son how to make snails with Play-Doh, I will be doing anything else other than writing at some point in, in the deadline that I have to write a book. But I know eventually the book will get written. And most of the time I'm writing in the back of my head anyway. And once I sit down, it's not that hard. If though you have big goals and dreams and they have become stories that you're telling yourself and they live only in the figments of your imagination because you're actually doing anything but the actions that you know you need to do to realize those goals and dreams, then self-sabotage might've become a habit. And it's really easy for self-sabotage to become a habit because as human beings, we are wired to avoid discomfort. So we actually do that avoidance behavior on autopilot a lot of the time. But the thing is, if you realize that your life is not going in the direction that you want it to go, then it's about raising your awareness to notice the behaviors that you are doing that are incongruent with who you want to be, and then changing the way of being to be able to come back into alignment with your values. So having that awareness of your values and noticing the behaviors that are incongruent, that are not serving you and that have perhaps become habitual or done regularly. And it sounds like also having some kindness for ourselves in that process, recognizing that you know, we're wired to avoid discomfort. So, you know, we're wired to want to make snails rather than sit down at the keyboard, that that's something that's very natural and normal, but that we maybe need some checks in place to support us through, through those habits when they're becoming unhelpful. Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, I'm a big fan of Play-Doh. I actually really love playing with Play-Doh. Um, it's very soothing. It's very it really calming. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> um, as long as we're at the table and not near the carpet, I'm good with it. But that doesn't get books written. And the I love that you brought this up, brought up this idea of checks because self-sabotage becomes a problem when it's left unchecked. And so part of the strategy for being able to overcome self-sabotage is to raise your awareness enough to be able to check in moment by moment to be able to assess whether or not the actions that you're taking are in alignment with where you want to go. Um, Is this consistent with the goal that I'm currently trying to achieve? And I'm not saying that you need to be perfectly consistent. No one is. Um, And you know what, if they are, they're probably an Olympic athlete or something, and I'm sure they still have 
bad days, but you know, their entire environment is geared around reaching a particular goal. For most of us average human beings, it's not like that. We have to overcome all sorts of challenges in our environment, in our relationships within ourselves to be able to do things that are outside of our comfort zone while living as human beings who are actually designed to avoid discomfort because that was once a survival mechanism. And so one of the things that you can do, which will hold you back even further is to beat yourself up for that fact. If you start coming down on yourself because you procrastinated and now you've left it too late and now, you know, you're up against a deadline. Um, uh, if you then speak to yourself unkindly, if you start treating yourself disrespectfully, it, changes your capacity emotionally to be able to complete whatever it is that needs to be completed in a way that um, has some sense of ease and flow to it. Um, and I'm speaking from both sides of the couch here. As someone who used to lean very heavily towards perfectionism, um, I know only too well that berating yourself is not going to whip you into shape like you think it will. In fact, what it will do is damage your relationship with yourself further. And self-sabotage already does that. So what self-sabotage does is it erodes our sense of self-trust. And if you then go and beat up on yourself for self-sabotaging, then your relationship with yourself becomes even more fragile. So the foundation that I like people to be able to come from when they're making these changes in order to move closer to the future self they're creating is to come from a place of self-kindness. And I mean, just to give listeners a heads up, you actually do have a masterclass that could help listeners recognize and sort of identify self-sabotage experiences in their life. So if this is something where your ears are perking up and you're like, perfectionism, I know that word. Um, and you maybe have noticed some habits in your life. You can go to um, Rebecca, uh, yeah, it's rebeccaray.com.au, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, rebeccaray.com.au forward slash free, F-R-E-E. And you can click on the link and that will take you to my free one-hour masterclass on how to overcome self-sabotage because I hate seeing people in a cycle, a habitual cycle that continues to trip themselves up. So that's why I designed the training to show you how you can actually stop and start living your bravest life. And you mentioned then self-kindness, you know, the, this idea that we could practice self-kindness to ourselves, you know, in the case where we might notice that we are self-sabotaging, would you talk us through self-kindness? Because this is something you've actually written in depth on. Yeah. The, I just want to start with the caveat around why I call it self-kindness and not self-love. So I'm not a huge fan of the term self-love. And the reason is that when I was doing clinical work, most people, most clients I saw was be very rare that I would see a client that didn't have some fragile relationship with themselves around feeling good enough or feeling worthy. That's what most human beings struggle with. Even if you're a psychologist, it's how we're wired to constantly check in if we're belonging and if we measure up, it's what we do. And so for clients who had a very vulnerable or fragile relationship with themselves, if I just sat in front of them and said, oh, look, Caitlin, it's just about loving yourself. Just start with some self-love. Then what that creates is this huge chasm from where someone is at point A to this point B, which appears way out on the horizon and perhaps completely unachievable for someone that has had an, um, 
destructive or critical relationship with themselves for a long period of time. So instead, I much prefer the term self-kindness because it brings some verbiage to an abstract concept. And I really like people being able to translate what we talk about psychologically into some kind of daily action, because otherwise, how does it ever make any change in our lives? So self-kindness is something that we can actually visualize. I can ask you, how are you kind to your partner, to your child, to your friends, to people on the street? What does that kindness look like for you? And then how can you apply that kind of kindness to yourself? So it kind of gives uh, a compass as to what we're looking for here. And I really like that you point out that self-love isn't necessary in regards to cultivating here self-compassion, that we don't need to use that sort of language, because I think that can be very distressing language because love almost infers this, this feeling, doesn't it? We don't always use it as a verb versus kindness. It's much easier for us to identify that as an action, something we can do on a daily basis, as you said. That's right. So self-love implies there's this kind of destination where you embrace yourself in this kind of enlightened love and you're finally there. I just don't believe it. You know, I think our relationship with ourselves, like our relationship with everyone else in our life is dynamic. You know, there are times where you feel really close and connected to yourself. There are times where you feel really close and connected with your friends. And there are times where there is a disconnect depending on what's going on in your life. So I really want people to understand that that dynamic relationship with yourself is completely okay. Um, But as you're doing the work to uh, perhaps heal the wounds that you've carried for a long period of time, which have damaged your relationship with yourself, then that takes um, action. It takes tangible action to create evidence for your brain that you can do things differently when it comes to being compassionate with self. And I think sometimes that's not very easily, um, it's not very easily understood because it's not what, it's not what's advertised to us by Western society. Well, tell us a little bit about that. Like what is advertised? What might people resonate with here? As far as I'm concerned, I think what's promoted is that we are not good enough and we have an entire culture of consumerism which depends on us continuing to feel not good enough so that we go and try to purchase the solutions to improve our sense of worthiness. So whether that be diets, um, a particular label of clothing, um, fancy cars, um, trying to fix your cellulite, um, whatever it is that you're trying to do to make sure that you measure up, that you're like Kardashian level of attractiveness. Um, I think our society is very much geared to pushing us in the direction that makes us think that there is something wrong with us and therefore we need to fix those things and then we'll feel happy or we will feel worthy. And spoiler alert, you won't. You just want, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> just gets more expensive. <laughs> yeah. Let me save you some therapy dollars and tell you it doesn't work like that. 
And with that, so you mentioned earlier, you know, when we look around, we could look to, you know, our partners, our kids, our friends, and look at how we behave, you know, in a kind manner to them that we can see kindness demonstrated. And yet it's really hard for us to cultivate kindness for ourselves. So would you be able to talk us through, you know, how, how can we start to practice self-kindness? Yeah, the, the most, I want to start with probably the most important thing that I think self-kindness rests upon and that's how we speak to ourselves. So I want you to imagine that there is, you don't have to imagine it. Most people can very easily identify this kind of critical voice in their head and that critical voice might actually sound like someone in your past who has been critical of you or a parent or a caregiver or a teacher who was particularly critical of you. And that voice plays every time it perceives that you're not perfect or you're not measuring up in some way, or you're doing something wrong or you're failing. Um, and what happens by habit, because we're wired to just listen to our minds automatically without evaluating what they're saying, is that we take on board what our inner, inner critic says without ever stopping to think, hold on a second, A, is this true? B, is it helpful? And C, is this a good use of my time and energy? And so what I like people to be able to do is to raise their awareness of what their mind is saying and understand that we actually have the power to respond to that differently and to create a voice within us that is kind and brave. And while that voice might never be the primary voice, it's always the voice that we can go to instead of investing our time and energy in the critical voice. So creating this voice that's kind and brave that we can turn to. So it sounds like it needs to be a deliberate turning to this voice, even if it's not the loudest, that it's something we can, we can cultivate and we can create a relationship with. Absolutely. It's very conscious. It's a very much uh, an intentional act because most of what happens that is unhelpful with regards to our thoughts and our feelings is that we respond automatically with no awareness whatsoever. And from that place, you have no choice. You have no empowerment. Your power comes by making a choice as to how you're going to respond to your thoughts and feelings. And that doesn't mean that you need to change your thoughts or feelings. In fact, I don't believe that we can ever get into a war with our thoughts and feelings and win successfully. Instead, I think it's a far better use of our time and energy to be able to say, what would happen if I was to actually encourage myself here rather than beat up on myself? So to give you an example, <clears throat> I sat down last Saturday, don't normally work on the weekends, but uh, sometimes there's something about not having emails come through and nobody else is working and I could just kind of zone out, pop my headphones on my lo-fi beats. And I said to myself, what would be possible if I could write two chapters today? I wonder if that's even possible. I wonder if um, I'm able to give myself the space for that to be possible. And before I knew it, two chapters were written. What I could have said instead was you're an idiot you've left it until this time. The deadline is now this date. I actually got delayed because I was sick. Um, so my mind then could have gone, you know, you should have protected yourself more so that you didn't get sick. It wasn't COVID, but still pick something up. Um, and 
now you're in this place where you're up against a deadline and you should have managed this better. You know now that writing against a deadline isn't helpful and here you are doing it again, blah, 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 blah. You know, I could have entertained that, but instead I sat down and literally started the sentence with what would be possible. What is possible from this place of spaciousness if I just try it out and see what it looks like? And so I actually did that on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. By Tuesday, I hit a wall. I wrote one chapter and not two, um, and then spent the rest of the afternoon on the couch because it's just what I had to do. I literally went and watched Netflix and I don't know what I did. I, li- I literally lied under a blanket in the cold. Like, Sounds like there was a degree of acceptance around that. You didn't sit in front of your computer sort of banging your head against the wall. It sounds like you went in with this, you know, I wonder this openness, this, this potentiality, this conversation you were having with yourself. And then when you got to a point where it wasn't flowing anymore, you accepted that that's where you were at and kind of did some self-nurturance. Yeah, that's right. So my creative process has evolved from one of war like intense inner warfare where I would end up in the fetal position crying and, and considering whether or not I need to flick an email to my publisher telling them that I can't fulfill on the contract to one of the book will get written. It will just get written in the time and the space that I have available to write it. And so my discovery as I age is that no amount of warfare that I bring to any process that's worthwhile in my life has helped me. And so I intentionally come from a place of possibility and abundance. What would it be like here if you had an abundance of creativity? What would be possible here if you gave yourself the space and time to create what needs to be created? How does this link with self-acceptance? I think the entire foundation of this is self-acceptance. I, I think when you approach anything that requires you to muster everything you've got, but you approach it knowing full well that you're an imperfect human who just does things, you know, in a messy way sometimes, that it allows you to show up with what you've got as you are throughout the process. And so... Um, I don't fight with myself or with the process to get to the result. Instead, I trust that the process will, a result will be created, but it may not happen in the time I expect it to, and it may not happen on the day I expect it to. So I've also changed that as well. I don't rock up to my computer going, today's the day that I must write chapter 13. You know, if it gets written today, it gets written. I don't always know when I sit down. It also sounds to me, Rebecca, like something's changed in your experience, you know, that you've, you know, disconnected your self-worth from this process in some ways, because we talked earlier about how, you know, we might be shown by media that we need to be the next Kardashians and we need the expensive car and the right brands and all of these things to find our sense of self-worth and, you know, meaning in our lives and to make us feel like we're a worthy individual. But a lot of people find worth as well in busyness and doing and their output. So it's sounding to me like you've disconnected your worth from your output, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's actually come with having a lot on. (laughs) So I'm just really busy now and I'm really busy in ways that I love. There's a lot, I feel like kind of, if I was to describe my 
work day now. It's like a bit of an octopus, you know, there's a, there's a book manuscript over here. There's a podcast episode over here. There's a new course being developed over here. There's managing my team over here. You know, there's, there's a lot going on. And so there's no one part of it that is just me now. Instead, the entire, all of it rests on this um, sense of what kind of contribution can I make to my people and how, how can I make sure that I'm in the best place possible to continue contributing to them in a healthy way, which means it's got to be sustainable for me. It's got to be something that interests me and it's got to be in a way that I'm walking my talk. So I think I've just gotten to a point where there is no one thing that defines my success. In fact, I would say that my success rests on the fact that I'm about to have lunch with my wife and have the afternoon off, you know, like that's what matters to me. And what matters to me is that at the end of the day, someone's read my work because I showed up to put my work out there and that's impacted them. I may never know them. I may never hear from them, but it's made a difference to them somewhere in the world because I showed up. So for me, that's success. My success is not, it's not attached to anything else anymore. Not, not a bank balance, not, not who knows me, not where I get invited to speak. None of that. It's just, it's much broader than that. I think now. How could listeners, you know, maybe take some steps to cultivate their own self-worth that is a bit more independent than the actions they might be doing or the people they're knowing. How can we cultivate that in ourselves? Um, <clears throat> this might sound morbid, but think about death. So I'm a big fan of reflecting on uh, if you have the privilege of looking back at your life from your deathbed, what would you like to say about how you lived? And are you living like that? Because you'll notice that how you lived is never attached to what you had. So you're not going to sit on your deathbed. I don't think I'm not, um, and say, oh, I had a, I don't know, Range Rover or Mercedes Benz or something. Yes, like I peaked. This was amazing. Um, but I am going to say, did I spend enough time with my wife and my son? Was I present when I spent time with them? Um, what, how did, my nan said it best. My nan passed away um, two years ago. And um, my pop passed away just four months prior to she, um, to when she died and they had been married for 69 years. And I was sitting with my nan the day after my pop died and she was devastated and she held my hand and she said to me, I'll try to say this without crying, but she said to me, darling, in the end, all that matters is who we love and how we love them. And as far as I'm concerned, that shapes how I live and will shape how I live for the rest of my life. And that has nothing to do with what I have, but everything to do with, am I living life in a way that at the end of it, whether that's tomorrow or whether that's in 40 years time, um, that I loved the way I want to love and that includes my people and my community, you know, my love output is that going in the directions, the direction that I want it to go. So for listeners, what I would say is get in touch with your older, wiser, calmer self and ask her or him 
are you living in a way that fits with who you want to be? That's really beautiful. I got tearful when you were talking about your Nan's message because isn't that the entirety of it? And it's interesting that we talk about, you know, self-love being so difficult, but yet here we can look back at the way we've loved and that's something we can resonate with. And that's something that if we get clear in our minds and in our hearts, we can show up every day loving. Absolutely. What a beautiful message. And I know that when I get caught up in criticism I have a very loud inner critic that used to have much more power over me than it does now I'm actually a harsher person so as my relationship with myself has changed so has my relationship with the world I've softened towards myself and therefore I've softened in the world and the quality of my all my relationships have improved as a result so I I think self-acceptance is the foundation that sits to give us these kind of roots from which we then grow out into the world. And at some point I just got sick of being with myself um, the way I was, where I was entertaining the criticism. And as I've aged, aging is the most beautiful and freeing thing. I just can't be bothered anymore. I cannot be bothered to show up in a way that's not me. If I'm going to sit here with you and do a conversation with Caitlin, then I will need to know that Caitlin is getting the most honest, most transparent version of me because anything else takes too much energy and I don't have that to give it anymore. And so that's also how I approach self-kindness it's actually more energy to beat up on myself, to constantly point out my imperfections, to constantly be in a place of image and shame management than it is to go, you know what, this is who I am today and this is what I've got to give. And that's okay. That's really beautiful. I think that's something that listeners will resonate with and can take away. And I guess with that, you know, Rebecca, we've talked a lot about you loving on your community. Would you mind sharing with listeners where you're at and how they can connect with you? Of course. So I'm on all the socials as at Dr. Rebecca Ray. My website is rebeccaray.com.au and all my books are in good bookstores um, and online. (laughs) If they're not in that bookstore, it's probably not a good one. <laughs> That's the line my publisher says to say. <laughs> and worst case scenario, listeners can go to rebeccaray.com.au and grab right. and grab your books there as well as... No, no, my books aren't actually from... So I don't sell them directly. My publisher okay. distributes them. Um, the, I did used to sell them directly, but Australia Post kept on letting me down and you know, when we're talking about things that take energy and energy that's not replenished easily, that took too much for me. So I stopped doing it. Well, at the very least, listeners can go grab the titles, (laughs) go to their bookstores, (laughs) let them know that that they should order these books if they have not already. Um, And also check out your self-sabotage mastermind class there as well. So if it's something that listeners have resonated with, there's certainly more in-depth knowledge that you can access from Dr. Rebecca. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom today. I think all of us probably have a little tear in our eye and are going to be thinking, you know, what our, what our elderly self might be, might be reminding us of as we look back and look at how we showed up and lived our days. Thanks, Caitlin. It's been such a pleasure to be here with you. Wow. 
Well, I hope that you found that interview with Dr. Rebecca Ray as interesting, informative, normalizing, and kind as I did. So all of the links to Rebecca's amazing plethora of resources will be on the show notes, drcaitlin.com. And of course, check out Rebecca's website as well, rebeccaray.com.au, where you'll then be able to link in to her free resources, her courses, and find links to her books. I actually am aware that she has just finished writing her fourth book, which she alluded to in this podcast. So definitely check out her Insta and Facebook to get more details on that. She is at Dr. Rebecca Ray. All right. I am so looking forward to connecting with you all next week. I can't believe it. It will be the final episode of season two of the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. If you have been enjoying these episodes, if they've been bringing benefit to your life in any ways, it would be so wonderful if you could take a few minutes to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. It's really helpful to spread the word and also gives me a little bit of insight into what is working and valuable for listeners. Thank you so much and I will see you next week. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.